Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than a pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, and Roger Federer is clearly mouthing the F word at the crowd, and they are letting him hear it. What a disgraceful display from the Swiss. Oh, what's this? He's throwing it back. This could change the sport. A terrible day for fishing. A great day for the fish. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio. And now your host, Shane Ryan. Okay, it's Thursday, and that means it's time for Apocalypse Sports Radio. This is episode number eight. And it is also the fourth episode we've done in a series of long-form interviews. Started with Tim Layden of NBC Sports, we did Will Leach, founder of Deadspin, and of course last week we had Drew McGarry on. Drew, also from Deadspin, now works for Vice and for Medium. Uh, but today I'm really excited to bring Greg Doyle onto the show. Uh, Greg, for me, is somebody who has had one of the more interesting career trajectories of any sports writer in America. I met him for the first time probably around 2011, 2012. Uh, I was covering college basketball, and Greg worked at CBS Sports at the time. Uh, enjoyed a really big platform, very, very strong writer, good columnist, uh, also a combative guy, not afraid to stick his nose in. So he enjoyed a degree of infamy as well. And he was always somebody that I really enjoyed following, and it was nice to meet him. Uh, eight years ago, we did a podcast together blah, 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 blah. But the really interesting thing about Greg is that in 2014, he decided to forsake his national platform at CBS and he moved to the Indianapolis Star, a newspaper, uh, back to whence he came for Greg because he started at newspapers. He worked at the Charlotte Observer, among some other places. So that was an interesting choice at the time. And as Greg will note in our interview, a lot of people told him he was crazy and that he shouldn't do it. Uh, but because he's so talented, he did quite well there. Uh, he's been there now, I guess, for six years. And just to quickly mention some of the awards he's won, uh, I now know he's a three-time winner of the Associated Press Sports Editor's Annual Contest. And this past year, he was named uh, Indiana Sports Writer of the Year. And that's the third time he's won that as well. And folks, he hasn't been there that long. So to win that many, uh, it just shows how good he is. And so, yeah, Greg and I will talk about uh, his life, his career, uh, how he's doing in quarantine, but also about the Indy 500 that was supposed to be held this weekend, what that means to the people of Indiana. Um, and then he's recently written some columns on institutional issues at both the NCAA and the NFL. So we'll get into that, too. And yeah, so that's Greg Doyle. But of course, we can't get there quite yet. I do have to give you the usual pitch. I know you're sick of it by now. Too bad. This is my podcast. I can do what I like. No, uh, really quickly, look, the Apocalypse Sports Network is a new Patreon project I'm running. Uh, if you subscribe for $3 a month, the grand list of the content you get includes two podcasts a week, one of which you're listening to right now, and it includes five blog posts a week. You can go to apocalypsesports.net right now to look at the free posts, see if it's something you might be interested in, and uh, of course, I would welcome your support. So yeah, that's the Apocalypse Sports Network. Uh, subscribe at patreon.com slash apocalypse. Sports, if you are so inclined, and if you're not so inclined, well, I hope you enjoy the free content. All right, let us now get to Mr. Greg Doyle. Segment break. 
All right, as promised, Greg Doyle is in the house. Greg, how are you, sir? I am good, Shane. How are you, sir? I am good. Uh, you know, the obligatory first question uh, in this age of quarantine and COVID and all that is, how are you managing? How's the family? <laughs> How's the brain? How's everything going for you? Um, it's... Uh... I, I have a I have a girlfriend for the first time in a long time and that that helps I mean that helps nice. a whole lot because if I was uh, just completely alone like I normally am and and normally my socialization is going to the gym and going to Kroger and going to the library and stuff like that when I'm not at games um, I'd yeah. be going nuts but uh, I'm I'm doing I got my health I got my job mostly and uh, got a new girlfriend so I'm doing I'm sure I'm doing better than most people uh, and I'm grateful for that how about you how are you holding up yeah we're holding up you know I have a two-year-old daughter now and uh, you know my wife and everything like that and I, I actually you know like you uh, sometimes I travel for work but other times I'm at home a lot so it's not that big a change for me but uh, I am grateful uh, to, <laughs> to have other people because like you said if I was alone all the time I think that would be tough now, it's interesting to me um, to have a girlfriend this time. The, the COVID-19 can really put that to the test, can it? If it's a new relationship, it's like <laughs> kind of a sink or swim type thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, either way, you're going to know what you have. If, if you if you like each other, you're going to find out pretty fast because there's <laughs> there's nothing. You can't hide in a the movie theater. You can't hide at a restaurant even watching other people eat. That's right. You're. It's a lot of one-on-one -on -one time. Um and it's, it's working really, really well. And I, I'm glad that I, I, uh, I reached out to her. We started this whole thing up uh, not long before the whole thing hit because had I not, you know, I, I would be completely alone and, uh, and yeah. she'd be mostly alone. She's got a kid, but I mean, she's, she's the best. Um, I, I've got, she knows that I like to box and she knows that I'm stuck. Well, I've got a stupid rubbery mannequin in my living room, the kind that I mean, it looks like I get it called Bob. It's called Bob. <laughs> you, you hit it. It's a punching bag shaped like a man's face and body. And anyway, I'm, I got a, I got I got people living below me in the apartments and it makes a lot of noise. So she knows I'm kind of lost without my work, my boxing workout. So for my birthday, she last month, she bought me a great standalone heavy bag and put it in her garage. And so I hit the lottery right there. That's awesome. I actually saw a video of you uh, hitting the heavy bag. Pretty impressive. You know, I feel so awful. I really do putting that on there. I do a weekly radio show in Southern Indiana, in Jeffersonville, New Albany, and the guy. You know, I've told him several times about this this boxing bag I've got, and it's keeping me sane, and I love it. And he keeps asking me every week, "When are you gonna put video up?" And I keep telling him, "Nobody wants to see that but you." And he goes, "No, that's not true. I get a lot of people asking; they want to see it." And I told him, I'm going to look like a douchebag. I put a video up of me hitting a bag. Like, look at me. I'm a badass. No, I'm, I'm bald. I mean, you can see how bald I am in that thing. I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I'm older than I'd probably look. And and I just, I don't look good. I don't look like Floyd Mayweather or something. But uh, anyway, I, I put it up there finally just to shut him up, really. Well, see, I uh, since quarantine started, I've been doing nothing but eating. So to me, you do look good. <laughs> to me, to me, it's, it's envious watching you hit that thing. I'm like, God, oh, I remember what it used to be like to be in shape. It seems nice. Um, so, yeah, Greg, speaking of uh, family, I, I didn't plan to start it this way, but I was just uh, reading all about, you know, all the awards you've won and all that stuff. And I came across an article from 2017 that I had not read before. Um, and it was the one about your grandmother and your father. And <laughs> this was a half hour I'm preparing for it. And I was just in tears reading this thing. Uh, and, you know, I hope it's fair game to ask you about that. But I think not that anybody listening needs an introduction. I think everybody listening will know who you are, but I don't know if anybody, if everybody knows this background. So I thought it would be a cool way to start to maybe tell the story of 
geez, where your dad came from, everything your grandma went through, really uh, unbelievable. Yeah, it's um, it's um, you know people oftentimes they they win an award or they get mentioned among great players and and athletes will say it sure is humbling to be mentioned alongside Wilt Chamberlain. And I'm thinking, I don't know that you know what humbling means. Um, yeah. Cause that, that strikes me as you're bragging about being listed among, you know, but to see where my dad came from and his mom came from, and my dad's one of 10 kids to see where they all came from is really humbling because, uh, you know, I, I hit the lottery as far as being born into a middle-class family in America. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't need to go into all the, the stereo, the, the demographics that, that have made my life easier than a lot of people's lives are. And, but I'm aware of all that. And, uh, I'm really aware that, you know, my dad, um, grew up in a way that just thank God I didn't have to, because I don't know as much as I struggle with life sometimes now. And, and I realized that I've got it easy compared to most people, or at least I should. Um, anyway, he, yeah, real quickly, he was the, the, the youngest of 10. He was born in the, the the term abject poverty doesn't do it justice. Um, uh, you know, we, we've all heard stories of poor people. Um, and maybe a lot of us were poor. I I put my dad's poorness against anybody I've ever heard short of being absolutely homeless or third world country. I mean, in our country, I'll put it up with anything. He actually lived just real quick. Last thing is he, he spent one Christmas for about three weeks in a um, chicken coop. That's where they lived. Their house burned down and a neighbor in town had a chicken coop and she moved the chickens out of there. And my dad and a couple of his brothers and sisters and his mom, my grandma lived in a damn chicken coop for a month in the dead of winter. So that's, and and that wasn't a whole lot worse than where they were living before. Yeah. And you know, it's such a wonderful story and I'll, I'll post the link when I put this podcast up, but there's just a lot there. And uh, one thing that struck me, my mom was a guidance counselor and, uh, just the uh, idea of how much impact one person can have, not only on one person's life, but all the all the kids that person has, the family, generations. Uh, I thought of this guidance counselor who basically insisted that your dad go to college, got him into college, talked to your grandmother and said, you need to get a job so you can support him going to college. Uh, and then he did and, you know, hit the ground running and the rest is history. Your dad was a very successful guy. And like you said, you grew up in a, a middle class house where you could you know, have the opportunities that you've had. But I, I thought that was a really neat aspect of it, of uh, how this one person kind of changed so many lives and how many people had to work hard, but it all centered around this one decision. You know, you, you say that about how he changed so many lives. And, um, you know, there's 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 generational wealth that, that we talk about athletes making. If you sign a $100 million contract in the NBA, that's generational wealth. You mm-hmm. have you've guaranteed that people around you, your, your great, great, great grandkids will never have to worry about money unless somebody screws it up. My dad, um, has you know, gave, uh, provided generational, I don't even know what the word is, a generational chance, a generational yeah. sh- shot. I don't know, but he, he grew up from where he grew up and became a, you know, a, a lawyer and taught law school and, uh, then became a judge. He became a judge for 15 years and he's right now running for state Congress in Florida. He's a terrible retiree. He's retired. (laughs) No kidding. I I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. He's coming off a, he only announced it and I'm, I'm using quote, quote finger marks with my fingers, you know, such as it is. He announced it. Um, 
I don't know, two weeks ago, maybe he's running for state Congress in Florida. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with that. But I don't bet against my dad. Yeah, that, and it's just an unbelievable story. And he's an unbelievable story. Your grandma is. You are. Uh, really cool stuff. And like I said, I'll link that when this goes up. So the way I was going to start the podcast, uh, Greg, was to talk about uh, the unique trajectory of your career. You and I did a podcast in 2012, eight years ago, and you were with CBS then. And we talked about uh, not only were you well-known, you were infamous in some ways. We talked about the, the people you fought with, Jay Mariotti, the perils of being on Twitter and fighting and all that. Uh, and you had a really, really high profile, and you still do. But in 2014, you made a very interesting decision that at the time almost seemed counterintuitive that you were going to go to the Indianapolis Star, uh, go from uh, an online big big platform that you had gotten to by way of newspapers in a somewhat traditional path, but you were then going to go back to newspapers. Now, with the decimation of digital media, that choice, to me at least from the outside, looks smarter and smarter all the time. Um, but I want to ask, you know, we're, let's see, six years, pretty much six years since that decision. Give me the update. Was it a good move? It certainly seems like it. But how are you feeling now about having left a national platform for uh, a, a city newspaper? Interesting that you uh, <clears throat> referenced the decimation of digital media. Um, I'm so immersed and surrounded by the decimation of print media sure, yeah, yeah. that I don't even know what you're talking about. I, I, I really <laughs> don't, and, and I should. Um, yeah. I mean, I see what's happened to CBS Sports since I left, and, and Lord knows it's not because I left, but um, they, they've they've gone through a bunch of changes, and Sports Illustrated has gone through a bunch of changes, yeah. not good. And Anyway, I, you know, I, I don't know what's safe out there anymore. You know, ESPN.com is safe, and yet they all have layoffs every now and then. So I, I don't, I don't know. And they had big I, layoffs I didn't, uh, pretty I didn't recently. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't make the move um, for safety's sake. Mm -hmm. In fact, everybody was telling me, don't, you know, don't do this, and it, it wasn't to avoid the Indy Star. It was, why are you, you're, you're this, you know, quote, quote, national website, and CBS was and is, but I mean, there's national, there's ESPN and Yahoo. And there's everybody else just fighting for scraps. And we, we were fighting for scraps, but I, the newspapers were clearly the internet was was shoving them down, and so people were wondering. And I guess kind of what you're asking is why would I do that? And mm. um, I, I had two two reasons. One big picture, one smaller. The big picture was I knew that I mean, like you say, I was infamous in some circles, and and I deserved whatever that means. I deserved. <laughs> um, and I, and I, but I also knew that, I mean, I, cause I wrote like a jerk, you know, my, my job was to get clicks and right. I never once wrote a story I didn't mean. So people would say, you don't even mean that. No, I mean it. I just, there's a lot of things I think good and bad, but the bad gets attention. And so here we go. Um, I, I, so I knew that people didn't like me and, um, and I'm just cocky enough to think and, and to kind of know that if you actually know me, you're probably going to like me. I'm pretty likable. It's just that the person I was in, on at CBS wasn't. So yeah. I wanted to be more liked. I was I was just tired of not being liked. It's hard to go through life not being liked. Um, that's it, so that was I, that was the motivation. Uh, that's interesting to hear that. Well, I wanted to be liked, and I felt like if if I if if a readership, even if it's smaller, and obviously one city is smaller than, I guess, a national website. But again, CBS, I, I realize I'm not saying it was ESPN. It wasn't. But um, I knew that if, if you had no choice, but, you know, if, if my newspaper fell in your fell in your hands a couple times a week or the you click on Indy Star or whatever, you free me three or four times a week, you'll know who I really am. 
and I got a better shot at you liking me than if you read just one torch job. Uh, what do you call it? Um, hot hot take? Right. Oh, we, right. You're gonna hate that guy. So that was the the big picture, but the much smaller picture, much smaller. And the real reason I went is. Um, like when the guy before me, Bob Kravitz, left for a TV station job uh, to write for the internet for them, and that news broke on the internet that summer of 2014, and um, and I got done like change. I don't like change. I I don't. We could talk forever. Nobody would be very interested by it, but I I do not like change, and I can prove that with a whole bunch of stuff. But <laughs> when and when, when that news broke on the internet, my first thought, like you know Malcolm Gladwell's blink theory, was I hope the star calls me. And my second thought was, who the F said that? Because that's not who I am. I'm not as someone who, let's let's change. Let's change our job, our city, our state. But I had fallen in love with this city for a couple of reasons. And uh, just when the star job came open, for some reason, that was the first time in 25 years where I said, I want you. Now, did you reach out to them or did they they get in touch with you? Uh, They... They got in touch with me like within three hours. Um, oh wow! I mean, listen, you know, you make connections over the years, and it's who you know, okay? And right. two things: one is I'd written a story about Duggar, Indiana, um, maybe six months earlier about this little town in Indiana that's fighting consolidation of its schools, and was going to try and start up a charter school in this little bitty town, and kind of because they're fighting for their life. If you're a little bitty town and you lose your school, all the young families are leaving, and if all you have are old families, it's like having an old church. Old churches die because there's nobody young in the pews. That's right. So I went to I went up to Duggar and wrote the story, and the Indy Star loved it. And I love I love this part of the story. Um, and the Indy Star they loved it, but they hated it because it wasn't in their paper. And uh, <laughs> the best part of this story, not the best part, but a part of the story is that that story was offered. Someone called the Indy Star and offered it to them. They got the wrong guy in sports. That guy didn't want any part of it, and mm, uh, so mm. I got called. So. Um, so that real quick, but that was one thing. The other thing is the managing editor of the Star at the time. His name is Ronnie Ramos. Um, he and I worked together at the Miami Herald in 1995. So it's who you know a lot, and he knew me. But that Duggar story had gone over well in the whole newsroom. So it, you know, it, it wasn't just they called. They called me because they had no. I mean, I knew somebody, and you know, timing is everything. Yeah. No, that's great. And you know, there's something in. I don't know if anybody ever says this explicitly, but it seems like the governing philosophy, if you're a writer who has any kind of platform, is that you should always be getting bigger, bigger, bigger in terms of the outlets. And I don't know if that's unique to America, or maybe it's just everywhere. But to me, it seems like um, there seems to be some comfort. Like, Like your position right now, where you're in a city, you have a platform, you have a great Twitter following, so your stories can still go national. But... You are uh, maybe isolated a little bit from what you you talked about of as the hot take industry, where somebody may only read one thing you write every month and hate you, and you have to deal with hate mail and all this other crap. It, it seems like there's a comfort in what you do now. Do you feel that, or is that just me imagining it from the outside? No, there's a lot of comfort in in in, in having this cocoon kind of, and um, it's still uh, everybody's, I mean, there's, there's nobody out there whose job feels great. Um, and, and that includes me. I mean, I don't hear anything like I'm in trouble, but the Sacramento Bee had layoffs a year or two ago and they laid off, I believe is Eileen voice and their, their columnist. And she was there. I mean, she was the columnist in that city and she got laid off, which made me think, Oh man, if, if she can go, anybody can go. And, uh, and then in San Antonio, a guy I worked with here in Indianapolis, he went to San Antonio, became a sports editor named Jim Lefko, 
they he got laid off and he was sports editor so there are no there's nothing that feels safe and i know you weren't really talking about financial i'm sorry job security no but that, that's that is all a part of it though yeah yeah i mean i more than anything i value security job security my, my kids being okay mm-hmm. uh that that drives me is is the need to make sure everybody around me including me is okay at all times and going forward 20 years so um, that that's that's a hard way to live because it's hard to know what's going to happen tomorrow, much less in 20 years. But yeah, this job, um, I can I can be the big softy that I really want to be. And <laughs> yeah. uh, every now and then somebody gives me an excuse to go after somebody. And so like, you know, the Colts will try and hire Josh McDaniels and something will happen and I'll get angry and I'll write something. But by and large, I get to be the big softy I want to be and and just, you know, can can cry and invite people to cry with me. And um, there's a lot of freedom in that. Yeah. One thing I, I do like to commiserate sometimes because I, I uh, similar position to you, not the similar position. I, I'm sure I have less job security than you, but I, I quit my job actually before the coronavirus began, uh, which was <laughs> one of the all time really interesting decisions. I had enough freelance work and I'm working on a book for later this year. So it was justified and I had been wanting to get out for a little while. But, you know, it's remarkable. I'm, I'm 37 and it's just to have all of this happen now. And even outside of the virus, you know, the media itself is losing money like crazy, losing ad revenue. Everybody's insecure. It's, it is like like you said, it's a really weird way to live. And I'm always curious when I talk to people, someone like you to say that even your job isn't totally secure is even still mind blowing to me. And I guess the question would be mentally, how do you deal with it? How do you live with the fact that no matter how good you are, no matter how big you are, how much people like you or whatever, there's still, you know, this economic reality that we're all insecure and the trap door could open at any time. Yeah, I don't know how much of that is um, because the the job we're in, there's, there are people in this profession, and I know you know them and you named one of them that I used to fight with all the time. Um, there are people that are so cocky and so arrogant and so bulletproof that they can't even imagine something going wrong with them, whereas I think a lot of us are uh, neurotic is probably too strong as term, but neurotic, insecure, just scared. I mean, you have to have a certain amount of self-awareness, I think, to be any good in this, in this business. That's right. You better, yeah. yeah, I mean, you better know who you are. You, you, you can't fool yourself into thinking who you, who you hope people see you as. No, who are you? Yeah. And uh, if you really know who you are, you know, nobody's irreplaceable. Nobody. So the way I comfort myself now, and it, it was a lot worse a while back, um, for me, because it, it used to be all we did was measure ourselves, and at least as far as we knew, the star, the Gannett newspapers in general measured you on how many, how many clicks did you get, like mm-hmm. like the CBS way used to be, how many people read your stories, because I guess that contributes. Why well, I know it contributes to the overall ad sales of the newspaper. Sure. Well, now what they do more than anything is they measure us, I think, based on how many subscriptions we generate and and it's a very imprecise way to do it. But the way they do it is if someone's not subscribing, but they click the subscribe button and, and go through with it. Well, where were they when they clicked that? Were they on my story? Were they trying to get to my story and my story's behind a paywall? Right. Right. When those happen, I get credit for that. And, And as do all the other writers get credit for theirs. And, um, I, People um, at the star, they, they now know this, and they've they've all known this. For the, the new hires we get, learn it, um, including my highest level bosses, mm-hmm. is that I don't 
pay attention to, I can't for my sanity. I can't, I've never known how many clicks I got. I've never known how many uh, subscriptions I generate. Um, and, and, and apparently they've, those have been pretty good numbers, but I've never known. I don't want to know because, uh, whatever the number is, it'll never be enough. And, you know, invariably the one story you check on like, wow, but that story did good. I wonder how many clicks. No, that's the one that no one read for some reason. So <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah, know, yeah, yeah. but my bosses, they take great care of me. And every now and then they send me an email saying, Hey, that story did well, or Hey, last month you did well or something. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's all this, that that's all the security I, I, I guess I need right now. But otherwise on the day-to-day basis, boy, I couldn't, I couldn't follow it. You couldn't pay me enough money to look at my numbers every day. You couldn't pay me. Even if I was the best in the business and I'm not saying I am, even then I wouldn't want, I don't want, don't make me look, I don't want to know. Yeah. You know, it, it is a horrible way to live. I, when I worked at Pace Magazine, I, and that's the place I just left, uh, Traffic obviously was huge. We were always, always looking at traffic, always looking at our stories. And the thing is, you know, as you found out, even even not paying attention uh, more than once in a while, as you found out, the quality of the story does not dictate traffic at all. Uh, now, sometimes you can write a great story that does great traffic, but other times you just write some viral little thing that took you 15 minutes, and that's going to be the one that generates a million hits or whatever it is. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a sick backward way. And just brainstorming in my own head, I'm trying to think, like, what is the solution to this? Because we do live uh, under the sort of boot of revenue and ad revenue. And I don't even know what you want. Maybe even if you want to go broader, just like the economic system that we're under. Do you think there's a way? And I know this is not your area of expertise, but we're just spitballing here. Is there a way that newspapers could be government funded in a way that would protect people from having to be slaves to traffic? And maybe even protect journalism in a way, because look, if you're always going for traffic, always going for numbers, that's going to affect the quality in really critical ways because people's habits are not always the most <laughs> enlightened or noble or the best thing or, or inspiring the best journalism. Yeah, what you're talking about is or just dancing around, you know, the, the idea of a socialism kind of thing, a yeah, little bit yeah, government funded, whatever. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the only answer, and it's going to be down the road, and, it's, and we can't do this. You can't make everybody agree to this. But pure capitalism is the only answer. We, And by that, I mean we all need to charge for everything. Uh, you can't read us without paying. Yeah, not anybody. Right. right. And, and then, but at that point, it becomes survival of the fittest. And so the, the weakest ones out there don't want that because they realize, well, crap, if I got to, you know, if, if you got to subscribe to read my paper or website or whatever, my TV station, no one's going to do it. Mm-hmm. Not in this town. They'd rather read that person or that website. Yeah. So it's not, but kind of what the athletic is doing where you kind of have to, you got to pay to read. Um, if you're good, you can survive. And if you're not, you won't. I, I wish we'd do that because I like our chances, but um, with enough people giving it away, I still get readers. It drives me nuts. I get readers emailing me saying, Hey, I've, Sorry, I don't read. You. I don't email you anymore like I used to. I used to read you, but I I don't. I, I you know, you guys are charging, and I'm not. And they, they I get emails like that. Oh yeah. And you, it's written a way where people want me to write back and say I'm so sorry we're charging you. They they yeah, want my yeah, yeah, yeah. apology, and I I don't apologize. Um, do you? And granted, Starbucks never gave away their coffee. Yeah. So it's not yeah. it's not an apples and apples comparison. But do you do you walk into Starbucks and say? I'd really like some of your coffee, but I can't believe you charged me for it. And then walk out in a huff. You no, don't. No. And, and I'm not, I'm getting paid with real money, not make believe money. So I need your real money to fund my lifestyle. 
humble as it is. And if you don't want it, that's fine. Don't pay for it. But I wish everybody would, would, would stop giving it away so we could all just figure out who deserves to belong in this business. But that's, I don't know, that's a dream. It, it is a little bit of a dream, but it's, and it's also something that if it was done originally when the internet came about, there might be a much better chance, right? Because you give people something for free long enough, and as you found, they feel entitled to it. Now, in, in the 1980s, if somebody had come into a newspaper and said, I think it's ridiculous that you make me pay for a subscription to your newspaper, I want you to deliver it to my door every day for free, you'd get laughed out of the building. That, that would not be something people thought, but you're exactly right. This is uh, everybody, even me, this humble little Patreon account that I've started, uh, I've gotten similar emails. Some people saying, look, I don't, I don't pay for entertainment. It's like, wow, I mean, that, that mindset to people is justified and it's madness. But again, I think it's something like, you know, like they're like Pavlov's dogs. You've given something for free long enough. They are, they're going to find it strange to pay for it. Well, it was all marketing back in the day. Back in the day, it was because uh, we didn't know what the internet really was. We didn't know what it was going to mean. That's I mean, right. it, yeah. it sounds ridiculous to say that now, but but in 1995 or six, we didn't know, and so we thought, well, this is a way to market, and so we'll put it, make ourselves available for free. And of course, most people will re- hopefully they'll read it and like it and decide to subscribe. And it just we just we're very short sighted. I remember when I uh, I was working for the Charlotte Observer in 1990 no no in 2003 charlotte observer and cbs sports called me about a job and i remember telling my my wife my ex-wife now but my wife at the time uh, you know they were offering you know a pretty good raise from what i was making and it all sounded great Mm -hmm. but what the hell is the internet i mean i knew what it was but i remember telling my wife at the time um you know i don't this 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 is a lot more money and it sounds good, but um, you know, I, the the Charlotte Observer will always be around. I'm not sure the internet's always going to be around. Yeah, 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 and, uh, right. Boy, was I wrong. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to sports here in a second, but I did want to jump on one thing I heard you say before, which is this idea that. There are still somehow these uh, very, very cocky writers or these cocky personalities. And you mentioned that in this business, you have to know yourself and you have to stay relatively humble. Um, Would you agree with this idea that that I've had for a long time that the minute a sports writer becomes egocentric in, in the sense that they start to see themselves even in a minor way as some kind of celebrity, that's when the quality of their work just absolutely hits the skids? Absolutely. Absolutely. Once you think you're somebody, you you give yourself subconscious permission to start mailing stuff in. Maybe you, you make one less phone call for the story or you you give it one less revision. Right. Or you tolerate one less one more bad sentence that, you know, is not quite good, but screw it. Um, yeah, I uh, w- the one benefit to me being very. um um, neurotic or whatever I am is that, uh, I'm not comfortable. Um, I would like to be comfortable. Uh, I would like to, and there are, there, I'm sure there, there might be somebody out there listening, thinking, thinking I'm an idiot for even saying this, but I, I don't feel comfortable ever. And, uh, I'm only as good as tomorrow's story. I'm only, I'm not as good as today's story. I'm not as good as yesterday's story. I'm only as good as tomorrow's story. I better nail that some bitch. Um, or I must not be any good. That's how I will always be. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm the same way. You strike me as the kind of person who I could give you $10 million, uh, and you still wouldn't feel comfortable. You know, it's just, <laughs> there's just something inherent. You, you might feel financially comfortable, but there would always be a kind of, uh, you know, just, just the, uh, like you said, the anxious or neurotic personality or whatever it would, it would keep coming back. 
I'd like to try that scenario, though. <laughs> well, if I get $10 million to spare, you're the first person I'll think of. Um, so, okay, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but the Indianapolis 500 was supposed to be this weekend originally, right? It was supposed to be this coming Sunday? Memorial Day Sunday. Yes, it was. Memorial Day Sunday. And what what is the mood there? I mean, to lose sports sucks in general, but that is something that is integrally tied to a specific place and has a ton of history behind it. Is that really bumming people out? Is it the least of everybody's concerns? What, what's the attitude in Indianapolis right now? Well, um, it was announced that it was being postponed, moved to August 23rd. That was announced um, maybe six weeks ago, about two, three weeks into the, the pandemic. And at that moment, it was heartbreaking and people were very upset and, and understanding but there's a lot of people that weren't understanding. Like that's two months away. It's too soon to cancel it. And yeah. what do you? And we're outdoors. And what are you talking about? And but um, it, there was a lot of heartbreak then. Uh, right now, we're making a big deal about it at the Star. Kind of like the Louisville Courier, Courier Journal made a big deal about the Kentucky Derby in early May. Yeah. Even yeah. I mean, it didn't run, but they they that weekend they wrote a lot of stories about it and did whatever they did. We're gonna have our annual. I think we call it pit pass. Roadshow where we we go to the 500. Well, we have an army there every year, but we have a a, a TV a, a web show live from from the speedway the morning of the race, and and we're going to do that this year. And we're going to have a special section, I think. And they've I've got a column I've already written. It's going to be in the paper Sunday mm-hmm. about not having the 500. And so we're we're making. I mean, it's a big deal to not have it. But back to what you said earlier is are people kind of we have more important things to worry about. Yes, yes. That's where that's where we all seem to be. Um, yes, yeah, I don't know what else to say, but yeah, yeah that's <laughs> right. Right, right. That worrying about the 500 was a luxury we had six weeks ago when we didn't really know how bad this thing was going to be. Now that we're in the middle of it, uh, we, we realize that's a luxury. We we wish we had it. Yeah, now, and just t- talking about the uh, the 500 in general, um, you don't strike me, and I could be wrong about this, but you don't strike me as somebody who's a big racing guy. Uh, before coming to Indianapolis. Um, and if you were, that's great. But as somebody who doesn't know the sport that well, and, and maybe it's one of the few big American sports that I don't feel intimately familiar with, just generally can you talk about what, what that race means to the city and the, the sort of place it occupies in the psyche of, of Indiana itself? Yeah, it was uh, very intimidating to me. Um, the, the one... The most intimidating thing to me about taking this job was knowing that I had to go to the 500 and and write about it and write about it to an audience that knew that thing so much better than I did. Yeah, um, yeah. The only auto sports I've ever done before I came here was the hot rod in HRA, the Gator Nationals every year in Gainesville, Florida, where I went to, I went to school at UF. That's so right. I covered that thing in 90, 91, 92, maybe. And no auto sports since then and, and no desire to do it. It just wasn't, you know, you, you can like a lot of sports. You can't, you don't do them all. I didn't grow up with that. But um, it took me about about two years to, to fall in love with this race. And I, you know, I now, I mean, I wish we had racing right now because whenever the, the races are Saturdays or Sundays, and the, one of the first things I do in the papers, I look and see, you know, the agate. Where I read about the race and then where'd everybody mm-hmm. rank and, you know, one through 23 and who didn't finish and why. And, you know, I'm getting into it, but because I realize now that that thing is, it's about people. I mean, you can boil it. You can talk about the technology and there's a lot of technology. I mean, I realize that the winning and losing comes down oftentimes technology, 
and you could focus on that if you want, and I don't. So I focus on the drivers um, and the fans and yeah. their people. And so they all have stories. But around here, um, it, it's like a lot of things where it's an older generation that really loves it. Um, there are still plenty of people my age and younger that love it. But, you know, back when there weren't that many options, this was the show for the whole year. And it's just, it's got to share its stage now with the Colts who weren't around, you know, before 87 or 83, whatever that was. And the Pacers who weren't around before the ABA and, you know, college basketball and all that other stuff. So it's not what it was, but once a year, a quarter of a million people show up here and, and watch it. And, uh, there's still a lot of, you, you know, you tweet about the Indy 500 on Twitter and you're going to get a lot of responses. Even now there's a lot of people still care about it a great deal for sure. Yeah. And now what about indie car racing in general or this category of racing? I just looked this up. I guess they would call it open wheel racing. So to differentiate it from NASCAR, which is obviously the most popular, is this something that's thriving in certain areas? Is it dying? Uh, obviously, you know, Indy, Indy 500 is the biggest race. Beyond that, is this something that will continue to be viable? Um, I'm going to answer that question as if you were asking it, asking me at uh, this time last year, because you know obviously it was sure, a virus, yeah, you know, it, yeah, yeah. It, it skews everything. But um, yeah, open wheel racing is very clearly on the decline there, okay. and they know it, and they're not they're not waving a white flag and giving up, but they're trying all kinds of different things. All you need to know about open wheel racing. Um, and this, I, 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 there's still a part of me that finds this impossible to believe, but the guy that owns IndyCar, the entire sport is Roger Penske who owned teams in IndyCar and still does. That's like the, the NFL struggling so much they sell to Jerry Jones or, you know, the NBA struggling so much that they sell to James Dolan, that mm -hmm. idiot. Yeah. Yeah. But the IndyCar was struggling. And they needed somebody with a lot of money and a lot of personality and a lot of vision to rescue it. And they turned to Roger Penske. Uh, I, I don't think Penske didn't go to them and say, hey, I, I see a business here. I want to buy it. No, no, IndyCar went to him and said, mm -hmm. will you please buy this and save this sport? So and the jury's out. You know, he just he just bought it and the, the virus hit. So we, we will see. But it's clearly like a lot of sports. It's losing its place because there's just there's so much competition now for the entertainment dollar. There's just so much. Now, is there a good explanation? This may be too broad a question, but why is NASCAR more popular than IndyCar? Why is one kind of car, <laughs> you know, become iconic, whereas th this type of car, which I guess used to be at least equal, uh, is is on such a steady decline? Well, I will tell you that NASCAR is not nearly as popular as I think you think it is. Um, really? Okay. It, yeah, I mean, it, it's more than IndyCar. And, and 20, 15, 20 years ago, it was... You know, it was on the way up and, and, and surging and, and all that. Um, and that was it shot whenever that was. And it didn't happen. So it's now on the on the, on the curve. It's on the downside of that okay. curve, just okay. like IndyCar is. They uh, they don't sell out the tracks like they used to. And again, it's all pre-virus. They weren't selling out. I mean, some of their, their biggest events weren't selling out. They, I think they actually they moved out of a track or two. And I, you know, this is the kind of thing that a year ago I knew and I wrote about it, but I, I just, I don't remember all the details, but NASCAR is very clearly on the wane also. However, it is more popular than IndyCar. I'm not trying to be the Indianapolis guy saying, ah, we're better. No, it, right. it's more popular right. than, than IndyCar for sure. Um, and the reason why, uh, among the reasons why is 
NASCAR, you know, they've got their base and their base is the South and all, almost all the drivers come from the South or, or act like they come from the South. And I'm from Mississippi. I, so I hope I can say that, but, mm-hmm. um, whereas IndyCar, you know, the drivers are international, a lot of them are. And, uh, you know, we, in fact, we've been waiting for the next great American driver and, and he's here, Joseph Newgarden, Joseph spelled with an F and I'm not sure if the average sports fan who doesn't really follow IndyCar knows that Joseph Newgarden's from, from America or from, from Florida, wherever he's from. He's not from, you know, I don't know where Joseph with an F sounds like, you know, from Germany or something. Right. But, right. Yeah. But, but so I, I think that's a big part of it is that the drivers that win and they, they're great. They're, they speak English fine, you know, they're, and they're so charming. And so, but I just think the average fan, you know, can embrace someone named Denny Hamlin more than they can embrace someone named Sebastian Bourdais. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose if your cultural base is largely in the South, you're going to want Southern drivers too. So that probably has that advantage built in. Um, other regional thing I wanted to ask you about, and this is something I never would have known about except I got on a huge 70s movies kick about 10 years ago and watched the movie Breaking Away, which is one of my favorite sports movies, and I love it. Uh, and that is uh, centers around a race called the Little 500, which is a bike race. At, uh, at the University of Indiana. you have any experience at all or any perspective on that? I always like to ask uh, Indiana folks about it. You know, I love the song Breaking Away, and I, I can hum it in my head right now. And um, so I, I grew up in the 70s. I love that song. The Little 500 is down the street from me in Bloomington. And until this moment, I had no idea that movie was about the Little 500. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> um, there you go. So, no, I've never – you know, I believe the Little 500 – Heck, I don't know. I don't know if it's the same weekend as the Big 500 or what, but um, I've never covered it. Don't know that I ever will cover it. Gotcha. Um, I've yeah. written a few stories where I've referenced it, and I know it's a it's kind of a big deal. And I don't mean that in a mean way. It's just you know, the Indy 500 is a big deal. The Little 500 is kind of a big deal. Right. And I'm aware of that, but but that's like I say, you, there's only so many things you can really care about, and that just doesn't make the list for me. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it'd be the kind of thing I would want to go watch or anything like that. But uh, it's just one of those little niche things that always uh, interested me. So, an article of yours I really loved, and again, we're going to link all of these. Uh, you wrote on May 11th about how Rick Pitino skates away again while Louisville sweats in a broken NCAA justice system. I've been on a complete tirade against the NCAA. You mentioned in the article that you know I live in Durham, North Carolina. There's now a Duke angle. Uh, seems very clear that Zion Williamson was paid by Nike and probably by <laughs> people from Duke as well uh, to go there. So the whole system's broken, but you write about something specific that uh, even I wasn't super clear about. It is make sure let me make sure I get the acronym right. It's the is it the IARP? Um, yeah, and it's very confusing, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the independent accountability resolution process, and we can go we can go into this because I think it's really interesting, and I I personally hate the NCAA, but can you explain what that is first? Like, what is the IARP? Well, it's the future. Um, what it is is the NCAA is very aware that there's. People don't like their their compliance system, their infraction system, and and it's an imperfect system, and and I'm hard on them a lot too. But they don't have subpoena power, and I mean it's it's a big moving. It's like the Titanic, and the iceberg's coming. It's hard to turn that ship very much. You're not very nimble. The NCAA is too big. Yeah. Um. And one more thing, in in fairness to them, and then I'll proceed to attack probably. But the NCAA is, yes, there's an NCAA office in Indianapolis, as a matter of fact. There's a president, there's a vice president, there's all these people. But the NCAA is 
all the schools, it, the, the, the schools write right. the rules, the schools right. pass the rules, the schools, they do all this stuff, but they hire, they, I don't know, outsource the, you know, their, the, the, the policing to the NCAA offices. But it's, so when we, when we get mad at Mark Emmert and NCAA, it's really intellectually dishonest because they're just doing, it's like getting mad at Roger Goodell for the NFL. All he's doing is speaking for the 32 owners. That's all he's doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we can get mad at him all we want. And, and every now and then he'll do some stuff we don't like. He's a lot, He has a lot more power in his world than Mark Emmert does in his. But it's a collection of, 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 of things that are they're not, you know, not just one building downtown. So uh, having said that, the IARP is the NCAA's way to, like, let's, let's remove ourselves from this process. Let's go have some outside investigators, some outside judges and jury, and – they will settle these really complicated cases. Now, if you, you know, there's a lot, most cases are not complicated and you don't hear about them. Most cases, the NCAA, I'm sorry, the school finds out it broke a rule, usually not very big, but still broke some rules, didn't know, and turns themselves in. And the NCAA says, okay, you get two years probation, that kind of thing. But five or six times a year, there's a monster. And now with the FBI sniffing around, it's going to be more than five or six, but mm-hmm. five or six times a year, there's a Louisville, um, there's an NC State, there's a Kansas, there's a, there's a Memphis with James Wiseman. And when it's when it's that big and that acrimonious between the school and the NCAA compliance people, they the NCAA itself said we're going to remove ourselves from this. We're going to put you into this independent track, and let them be the judge and jury and all that. The thing is, is that there's no appeal in this, and, and this was passed by schools, by presidents and ads. There's no appeal, and what's going to happen is Memphis is in there right now. So is NC State. I assume Memphis because they've been they've been the track for a month more than anybody else. They'll get ruled on first, and um, they'll get hit hard, and they will or NC State will when they get hit hard, they will go to court to appeal because there there is no NCAA appeal. You can't appeal it to the NCAA. That 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 avenue doesn't exist. I mean, you can try, and Mark Emmert or his minions will laugh as they read the email and say and throw it away. Yeah, but. You can go to a, you know, a judge, the, the third district judge of whatever, they, they're not beholden to anybody. They'll listen to you. Mm-hmm. So if Memphis or NC State or somebody like that appeals and actually gets it upheld in some shape or form, then who the hell knows what happens next? But in the meantime, the IARP is the future of NCAA compliance. And as far as the big cases go, it's going to be it's going to be the one that handles all of them. Now, you in your in your article, you talk about the arbitrariness of this in the sense that, OK, Rick Pitino and, and a lot of his assistants were the ones possibly, as far as we know, spearheading this. They are now elsewhere. Rick Pitino was hired by Iona. He is not being investigated. And the great irony is that Louisville is, even though he might be the one most responsible for it. So it's arbitrary in that sense. I look at the uh, the Duke Zion Williamson thing as very interesting because this this accusation that Nike and and Duke representatives may have given benefits to him and his stepfather and his mother that came out because of a dispute um, with between agents. So you know he he got rid of one agent, hired CAA, and then the old agent sued, and so that's where those accusations come from. Now the Kansas stuff, the Louisville stuff, all of that, all the Adidas schools, those accusations, as you pointed out, come from the FBI. So you can't ignore the FBI, right? But I feel like the NCAA could very easily ignore a dispute, a lawsuit that will likely get settled out of court between two NBA agents. And so that's arbitrary in that sense, too, that the FBI happens to have caught Adidas. But I think we'd all be fools to believe that Nike is doing anything different, right? So 
this whole idea of enforcement, Greg, to me is is flawed in that sense. Are, are you getting that idea too? That okay, you've got the IRP, you've got a system for policing this stuff, but in the end, it's a little bit ridiculous because you're just going to catch someone by luck, and everybody else is going to go free. Yeah, and it, it's as I wrote in the story, it's a very naive thing for me to write and, and then say right here, but it's the, it's the it's the thing that we've all been saying for years, which is. By the time the NCAA, because again, it's a slow moving process. By the time they nail somebody, the coach that was there is gone. The player that specifically cheated is gone. It's possible all the players are gone because three or four years later, they graduated. No one's left. And yet they still get five years probation and you can't play in the NCAA tournament next year, even though you guys were in high school when this happened. Yeah, I'm just so sick of that happening I'm and, and the Rick Pitino thing was the was the camel that broke this I'm sorry the the straw that broke this camel's back because he's at Iona I can't believe Iona hired him I mean first of all I mean shame on you Iona what the hell are you doing but um <laughs> right. they hired him and and no he didn't the headline says he skated and I mean he lost his job at Louisville and he went from you know a, a basketball blue blood to Iona so he he's paying some but he still has a job a coach a team a million dollar contract and the chance to rehabilitate his image. And it's just, meanwhile, the guys at Louisville, Chris Mack is the coach there. It just sucks for all of them. And one thing about Duke, um, and I was a Charlotte observer from 97 to 0, and, and then lived in the area for another year or two for CBS and covered college basketball past that. But I was specifically covered Duke. Hell, I, I wrote a book about Coach Krzyzewski. I wrote a book and it wasn't yeah. very good, but I wrote it. Um, <laughs> You know, I was there, living there, when the New Orleans Times-Picayune broke the story that Chris Duhon, who was Duke's point guard, McDonald's All-American, and Carlos Boozer, who was their power forward center, McDonald's All-American, I think. Both of them were obviously future pros. Um, both those guys, Duhon came from Louisiana, which is why New Orleans was looking at the story, and uh, Boozer came from Alaska. Both those guys, their parents moved to Durham. Um, to follow their kids, which is great. Um, they got jobs in the area to pay their bills, which is great. They got jobs with Duke boosters. Um, and the NCAA never even looked at it. The rules are just different, you know, and, and, and it's, it's, look, it's entirely possible. I, I guess, I, I, I guess it's entirely possible that these guys just happen to apply for jobs and had no idea Duke boosters, you know, were the, running the companies and and got hired and and the boosters had no idea that that their their kids were the stars coming in. I mean, it's possible. It's all innocent, but the odds of that are slim and none. Yeah. And yeah. Duke, Duke never got looked at. And Lance Lance Thomas and that jewelry. And I'm not trying to make a Duke rant. I'm just saying that there's some schools that the NCAA just doesn't seem to really have the stomach to go after. I think Mike Shevsky's a guy. They don't have the stomach to go after. Um, look at North Carolina, and it's unbelievable how scummy North Carolina has been with you know with Blake and uh, Butch Davis and yeah. and the African American Studies program and the grades they were given out and it is unbelievable. North Carolina should be a ink spot on the ground in Chapel. There there should be the Dean Dome should be shut down for ten years. Um, what's the name of that damn football stadium? I spent a lot of time. Keenan. Keenan. That's right. Yeah. Keenan, they should put a big ten over Keenan and say we're not going to play for another ten years. Um, what they've what what happened in North Carolina has been so awful, and and yeah, they've got a lot of bad publicity, 
what the hell ever happened to him? No. Whatever happened? I got, I know, you know, NC State fans are watching both these stories, and they're like, uh, if this was us, if this was happening to NC State, we'd get the death penalty already. And they're, they're probably right, because the NCAA has the stomach to go after NC State. It doesn't have the stomach to go after Duke and Carolina. Well, that's it. I mean, that concept of too big to fail, I think, uh, applies directly to Coach K in this case. And I... I had written previously, I would imagine that when this news came out about Zion Williamson, Mark Emmert and whoever's, you know, there in Indiana had their head in their hands. I don't think they want this. I don't think they, you know, and I, and I think also, Greg, we're at a point where the very system of amateur athleticism, the idea that you can get away without paying these guys is under heavier fire than ever. And I think every big battle they fight brings the microscope more on them so that they're almost in a losing position. Now, I, I come at this probably a little differently from you. I'm, as you could probably ascertain from my socialized newspaper question, <laughs> I'm a little bit on the left on this, which is I think you know the greater crime here is not paying these guys, is, is really making a billion dollars uh, a year as of, I think 2017 was the first year the NCAA became a billion-dollar institution, making a billion dollars a year on the backs of these workers who really are the only thing we care about, right? We care about the football players and the basketball players, and you don't pay them what they're worth. Uh, you give them free education, free books, or whatever, but it's not nearly what they're worth. So to me, that's the bigger crime, and I personally don't care when somebody like Patino or, or you know, Coach K or whatever Coach K did, or if, you know, at UNC they're giving – Free, free A's in the African-American studies department. To me, that's nothing. To me, I just like, to me, the NCAA is the real culprit. And so I kind of like this. I kind of like when it all comes bursting down. But it sounds like you do think that there is a place for this justice, but that it, it, maybe they have to find a way to apply it more evenly. Well, given the fact that, that Zion Williamson, you know, if, if his family didn't break the rules, if all he got for going to Duke was, uh, you know, one-year tuition, given that, um, all the more reason why I don't want a coach to get away with whatever it is he's doing or whatever it is he's allowing his boosters to do. Like, cause these coaches, I'm not talking about coach K specifically, but Nick Saban, whoever you are, these coaches make five, six, eight, 10, $12 million a year. And, uh, even the bad ones and by, by, by bad, I mean, I don't mean the top 10, but you, you be top 40 coach and you're making multiple millions of dollars a year. Yeah. I don't want, I don't want them skating away to Iona uh, while their players, um, are you know left with, to fend for themselves if they're not in the NBA? I, I don't want that to happen anymore. But th you're right; these guys clearly need to get paid. Clearly, and they're about to get name, image, and likeness, and we'll see what that looks like. But mm -hmm. the thing is, is the more money you allow to legally pour into the system, the more loopholes you open. The more it's just as dirty as it is now. When they're trying to keep it all, they're trying to keep all the, the stain out, all of it. They're going to allow a big ink printing machine to set up shop right in the middle of the, of the whole building. You don't think it's going to get dirtier? I mean, it's just going to. Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. I'm not saying. I'm not saying. Therefore, don't pay them. I'm just. I'm saying this problem is too big for me. I don't know what the solution is. Yeah. There's just uh, once once they start finding a way to legally put money in people's pockets, like, all, all hell's about to break loose. Well, it certainly is going to be interesting. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to ask you, the last thing we'll get to here, you read another great opinion column um, that perfectly skewered the absurdity of a proposal. Uh, I guess it would be an addendum to the Rooney rule in the NFL. And I'll let you explain this idea. Uh, it was later tabled, I saw on Tuesday. So it's not necessarily going to happen. It might. But the gist is that... Um, now... Yeah, clarify if I'm if I'm getting this mistaken. But basically, if an NFL team, the proposal was if an NFL team does a minority hire at GM or coach, 
they're going to get a boost in the draft. In other words, they're going to skip seven, seven draft picks or something like that. Do I have that about right? Yeah, if you hire a, a minority coach, your third-round draft pick rises six spots. So instead of picking 74th, you're going to pick 68th. If you hire a, a minority GM, that third-round spot goes up 10 places. If you happen to be a really good boy and hire one of each <laughs> wh- white owner, we're going to pat you on the head and give you a, a, a spot, a jump of 16 spots, 10 plus 6, 10 plus 6. Um, uh, and th- just the idea, it's, it, it's on the one hand, it's really good. I mean, it really is good that the NFL is trying to say, you know, what's, what's happening right now is not acceptable. The Rooney rule as constructed is not getting it done. We can't keep having, having white owners hire white GMs who hire white coaches to coach a 70% minority roster. We, we th- this can't keep happening, but, but to, to go through it that way. To, to to actually, rather than punishing people for not doing the right thing, to, to pat people on the head and and say, "Good, good little kid, we're going to move your draft spot up because you did the right thing." I I, um, I hate that, and I think it's insulting. And and as I wrote, and I Lord knows, I didn't speak to Mike Tomlin, I didn't speak to uh, you know the coach and uh, Lynn, I didn't speak to you know former coach Marvin Lewis. I don't know what anybody thinks, but I I kind of know how these guys are operated and wired. I know how I'm wired. And so I guess I'm putting my own values on this. But if you told me I was getting a job only because the guy my, the guy who hired me was going to get a reward for hiring me over someone else, um, no thanks. That I don't want it that bad. That feels like charity, and I don't want it. And I realize I'm saying that as a white man in an industry that has its own problems um, that of being too sure, white. Sure, sure, sure. So, yeah. so, so I I'm not I'm not a complete idiot. I you know I'm self aware of that too. But anyway. The whole thing's just it, well, it, but I would say, Greg, it puts them in a terrible position too. The people you're hiring, whether it's the GM or the coach, because it immediately puts the thing of them on. Oh, they just got hired because the owner wanted a better draft pick, you know. And and they have to, and that may not be true, but it, it, they have to live up to that. And you all, you all pointed out a great absurd scenario where possibly. Uh, somebody could do this and skip ahead of a team like the Steelers <laughs> that already has like a black coach. And so, you know, these, these things are, like you said, it comes from a good place. And you, you pointed out the stat, I think 17 out of the last 20 head coaching hires have been white. Uh, that has to change. And they're doing the right thing to try to figure out how to change that. But it just made me laugh how completely ass backwards this proposal was and how condescending really I think is the only word for it that it, it, it can only be bad for anyone they hire uh, because of the way they're trying to like preload the deck now again this still could happen it was not approved I would assume that the momentum is probably sucked out of it at this point but uh, but geez I, I just can't imagine a worse idea in some ways no the, the fact that they tabled it they, they were the, the news broke that they were going to vote on this thing on Tuesday of this week the news broke over the weekend they were going to vote Tuesday the owners meeting well, Tuesday rolls around and they just tabled the idea. They didn't even vote. It was, I mean, yeah. th- to his credit, Roger Goodell, you know, stuck his thumb in the air, could feel the way the wind was blowing and said, no, no, no. We, the last thing I want is this thing to pass now because we're taking a beating for this. So we're taking this off the table. I, it'll never come back. It'll never come back. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, by the way, I, um, I was always told as a kid that uh, a word like white, you're supposed to pronounce it HW. Uh, that WH sound is supposed to be white like that you are one of the few people other than my grandmother who does it correctly i certainly don't so uh, so congratulations on that do i do i say it wrong white do i do that no that's the right way i was always taught that was the correct way it's the hw sound i could never do it 
Uh, I never even tried to do it, but my grandmother always did, and I thought, oh, yeah, she's one of the few people who does it correctly. Uh, And you You do, too, I noticed. I grew up in Mississippi, um, and so to be told that I say anything correctly is really, really, it's a mind-blowing, like, I'm not sure if you're teasing me or what, but I'm 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 having a hard time wrapping my brain around the whole, I said something (laughs) right. That sounds very weird to me. No, I'm not teasing at all. I was legitimately taught that as an elementary schooler and and never could do it. Now, did you ever have more of a Southern accent than you have right now? Because I I wouldn't pick you out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've lost a lot of it, if not most. But every now and then, a word will come out, and my aforementioned girlfriend will tease me about tease me about what the way I say a certain word. But yeah, yeah I, I lived in Mississippi and and in Georgia for about ten years growing up. But then I from there I went. I've lived in Wisconsin and, and Florida, where it's there's no accents. And uh, anyway, I've moved. I keep moving north, <laughs> and I'm in Indiana. So yeah, I've lost a lot of it, and I and I hate that. I I yeah. I love Marty Smith. I love where Marty Smith is gone. I love the fact that you can sound like Marty Smith and be a big shot on TV because. When I was growing up, you couldn't. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, I, I wish I hadn't hadn't lost as much of mine as I've lost. My wife um, is from Maine, and she grew up in Maine, but both her parents were Southerners, one from Tennessee and one from West Virginia. And she still says the word lawyer. I, I say it like lawyer. She says lawyer, uh, and that, so it's funny oh. to, to, to trace that back to her Southern lawyer origins. Is correct, lawyer, lawyer. I don't know what you're saying, but lawyer <laughs> is how you say that. What are you talking about? That's good, Greg. This is awesome, man. Thank you so much for dropping in. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Shane, for having me on. I really, as I told you before, it's an honor to be asked. Thank you. Segment break. That was Greg Doyle. Always awesome to have him on. Always awesome to have you all listening. Thank you very much for that. Uh, hey, if you enjoyed it, and I certainly hope you did, why not tell a friend? Why not tell a family member who is not already a friend, but to whom you feel a sense of loyalty and attachment? I'm not going to get too deep into that. That is completely your business. But yeah, spread the word. Uh, why not go to iTunes and write a five-star review? Why not march on the streets just shouting the name of Apocalypse Sports Radio while you wear a sandwich board? Any of those things are good. Um, If you have to choose just one, I would go with the sandwich board. But any of them will do. Uh, You know where you can listen. Google Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, all the usual suspects. Hey, this is episode number eight. We're about to get to number 10. It's been really, really cool to have you along for the ride. Thank you for that. And we will see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.